So we're beginning this new series today from 2 Timothy. This is a letter written from the Apostle Paul, written near the very end of his life to one of the most well-equipped leaders of the generation to come. And you might say to me, why are we reading it then? Because I am not one of the most well-equipped leaders of the generation to come. What's in it for me in 2 Timothy? If your first objection is that you are not well-equipped, Paul's response is, yeah, you are. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are well-equipped. You have all that you need. He says to us in verse 1, and if you want to open up uh, 2 Timothy and read along with me, he says in, in verse 1, the only reason that he is an apostle is by the will of God. Paul was the worst of all sinners. Before his conversion, his job was murdering Christians. He was about as bad as you get. And yet, by the will of God, he becomes an apostle who writes for us 13 books of Scripture. It is not by his merits that Paul serves. It is by his calling. Then, in the same way, he describes anything that Timothy has going for him, verses 6 and 7, as a gift. Anything that we do, any equipping that we have, is because God himself has equipped us by grace. Second objection. You might say to me, okay, I accept that the Reformation was onto something and that the gospel is real and I do have a calling and I do have a gift because I do like Jesus. I have received the gospel. I am saved by grace, but I'm still not a leader. That's not me. That's not my bag. I'm not a leader. Well, I think Paul's response to you would be, neither am I. There are so many words that Paul could have chosen to describe his leadership style, and, and leader is never really one of them. Uh, for example, the New Testament provides all sorts of words. He could have used the word hegemonia, from which we get the, the English word hegemony. That's a word for leadership that appears three times in the book of Hebrews. It's a New Testament word, and it means a boss, but he never calls himself that. Could have used the word arche, from which we get words like archbishop and archenemy. They don't have to be the same person. Uh, the arch word, uh, like archangel, just means first in rank. He could have lent upon his status, but he never did that either. Paul never ever uses these kinds of words to describe his kind of leadership. He uses phrases like boatman, and builder, and scum. That's my favorite one. Something far more humble. In verse 3, he describes himself as one who serves. It's a word that means worship. And uh, we have that in English idiom as well. If you think about it, right now we're in a service, serving God. And being in a service is an act of worship. In its secular form, take it away from any kind of spiritual meaning that Paul has, has invested upon it. In its secular meaning, this word serve means menial work. Really basic drudge work is what it means. Menial tasks. If Christ has called you to believe, Christ has called you to serve. 
anything you do for him at all whatsoever is your act of service. It is your worship, and it is a form of leading in the most general sense. So you might say to me, okay, fair enough. I, I accept both your points. I got a calling, and I guess if leading in church just means doing anything at all, then uh, I could do it. But I'm still the wrong generation, so this letter does not apply to me. Perhaps you think you're too young to serve. That would be the assumption in Paul's day. Young people, not allowed. So in 1 Timothy, he says, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. And then church history goes on to prove to us that was rather good advice. The 20th century Welsh revival in the valleys of South Wales was initiated by a man just 24 years old. The 18th century First Great Awakening in the US and, the, uh, and in England uh, was influenced by Wesley and Whitfield. They're both in their 20s at this stage. And the the tired old man of the group, the wrinkly coffin dodger of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, had only just turned 30 when he led a quarter of his town to Christ in one afternoon. So don't tell me you're too young. I'm way too old to lead a revival. Do not tell me you're too young. Of course, in our, in our time, very much unlike Paul's, I think the assumption is that you'll be too old. Our culture is a culture that actually delights in youth and denigrates age. It's historically weird, actually. It's the opposite of what most times and most places have done, but we delight in youth and denigrate age. And if you don't believe me, this afternoon, take a trip to Nordstrom and uh, ask for a face cream to make you look 20 years older, and they will look at you like you're crazy. We love youth. And so if hearing another thing about the up-and-coming generation and, and the generation to come and how important they are feels like just another insult to you, and you're saying to me, why should I read the letter? I'm too old. Would you look with me, please, at verse 5? Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. What he's speaking about here is intergenerational ministry. He's talking about what someone older has to offer for you. He's showing people, through years of intimacy, what it really means to believe. He's talking about the power that someone who has had a long walk with Jesus and has had ups and downs and has lived out that faith through Simple acts of menial service. Talking about the power that person has to show what Jesus and faith in him is all about. I almost missed the word sincere. I'd written the draft of the sermon. I was just reading through the passage again, and suddenly this word sincere popped out at me. I thought, how did I miss that? It, it means literally without hypocrisy. The hypocrites, the play actors of the day, would wear a mask up on the stage and pretend to the audience to have feelings. But of course, the human behind the mask would feel something very different indeed. Uh, without hypocrisy, sincere, it means genuine. Paul is remarking upon the power that a genuine faith has. That, that whatever Lois taught Eunice, and Eunice taught 
Timothy, or maybe Lois was involved with Eunice teaching Timothy, whatever it was, had a profound effect because the things they said and the things they did matched. And so Timothy thought these people mean it. You might be too old to be a Timothy. You are never, ever going to be too old to be a Lois or a Eunice and to influence powerfully the generation below. God could be calling you this morning to become a spiritual grandparent or a spiritual parent to someone in the church, someone new, someone young, and then show them what sincere faith does. And if 10 people did that, stand back and watch what God would do. Like Paul, you might find that the most fruitful time in your ministry is the last two years of it before you die. Why not? The Spirit is not bound by these little things that we say in our culture should bind people. And uh, when I start to think about the people who've influenced me, people who've been uh, profoundly helpful to me in my walk with Jesus, most of them have been older than me, and all the others have been considerably older than me. Shortly after I moved here, Lucy Oliver's brother, and one or two of you know, know Lucy, and maybe one of you knows her brother Fielder Israel, whose name enough tells you that this dude is special. Uh, Fielder Israel w- was good enough to share with me the ministry of a funeral for, for Woody uh, and then took me out for a coffee. And Fielder had been ordained an Episcopal priest. He had long since retired. And he, you know, he said, let's go for pastor's coffee, which, uh, you know, I know what these things are like, but I went anyway. And then we sat down. And he told me all these stories, which I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting the ones I got. He told me all these stories of things he got wrong in his ministry. He's reflecting uh, over a long walk with God. He told me about these conflicts that he's dodged, and he told me uh, about decisions that he'd reversed after bullying and threats. He told me about mistakes he'd made in his ministry and repeated. And he told me about missed opportunities, and he told me about regrets. This was not the morning I was expecting, I can tell you. Story after story, I found myself disarmed. And then I thought, when I go out with my friends, when I go out with people of my own age, all we do is boast. This is how good we're doing. This is our plan for next year. This is what God's going to do through me. And here's where I'm going, and here's who I've met, and here's what I'm reading, and here's what I've produced, and here's what my boss did wrong, and we would not do that, would we? You know, age 25, we know better. He was confident enough in Jesus Christ to cut through all of that and be humble, be vulnerable, and talk all morning about the things he got wrong. And then he went deeper still, and he showed me why he'd got them wrong. And he told me that all of the biggest mistakes he'd made were because he'd been afraid. He was afraid of conflict, afraid of losing a fight, afraid of losing a member, afraid of tanking the church. And he said to me, take courage. He literally encouraged me. It was the most brilliant piece of pastoral care I have ever received in my life. And he showed me grace. And he showed me through words and through action 
what a sincere faith does for you. Then he showed me that through all of these wounds and all of these failings, God was still there. God still loved him. God had still used him. And that, in fact, at the end of his life, he was closer to God than he'd ever been before. And in talking like that, he then made it safe for me to do something I'd never done before, which was to admit my mistakes and that I was afraid as well. Paul says in verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. Very interesting, isn't it? A weird way to put it. In Greek, the not comes first. You remember on the, the TV series Friends when they would tell a bad joke that wasn't funny and then just use the word not at the end of it to tell you it was your time to laugh. Well, Paul's doing that in Greek. Not, we have a spirit of fear. It's a really weird way to put it. Uh, interesting, uh, what this says to me, this is my own idea, so you take it with a pinch of salt at best. My idea is that he's saying our default position is fear. That's what I think it means, that we're all afraid of something, unless and until that spirit of fear is driven out by something better. Fear is where the world camps out. Fear is what motivates our decisions. The advertisers use fear to sell us their products. The news uses fear to drive our clicks. Saw a headline on my news app the other day. It was so absurd, I took a screenshot and I showed it to as many people as I could. Headline on the Sky News. Omicron is by far the most worrying form of COVID we have seen so far, but we shouldn't be too afraid. <laughs> like, for me, this just like epitomized the news cycle of the last two years. In the sound, it was like, ah, it's okay, I think. When Paul says fear, He's tapping into something primal, something that, that characterizes the default position of the world. And he's doing the weird word thing again, because there's a perfectly good New Testament word for fear that appears loads. And instead of using it, phobos, fear, he uses this unique word, dylia, a word that appears nowhere else in the whole of the New Testament, meaning not that sort of apprehension of harm or, or, or deep respect for something greater that phobos can mean. Uh, dahlia means timidity or cowardice. It's a secular world, a word from the secular world, a battlefield word. It describes how a person seeking to preserve their own life runs away from a fight or hides or surrenders. That kind of fear. Why does the enemy want you so afraid? Because he's afraid of you. Satan is afraid that you might serve, enlist, become a serviceman or a servicewoman, maybe take a rank. So he tells you that you will be safer if you do not serve. Now, in a sense, it's true. Paul is going to go on in this letter to talk about the cost of serving in the church, the cost of worship, the cost of getting up and doing a thing. And 
Satan hates us when we serve, and he fights us when we serve. And so, in a sense, there's some aspect of this that is true. But as with all of Satan's lies, it's a half-truth. Satan really knows that inactivity feels safe. Satan knows that passivity feels safe. That cutting and pasting what we did the year before feels safe. But he also knows that if we do nothing for long enough, we will die. Nothing is going to kill a church like fear. It is deadly. There's an illustration of the point in verse 6. You, Timothy, Paul says, have the gift of God in you. So, fan it into flame. It's a lovely image, isn't it? What it's saying is that God has kindled a little fire in you when at first you believed, when your heart was strangely warmed. A spark, a flame, a flickering light came on in the darkness. That was transformative. That was unique, and that was not something you could have done. You didn't provide the fuel. You didn't provide the spark. You did nothing. He chose you through the gift of his Holy Spirit. But now comes your activity, your movement, your action. As you serve, you oxygenate the flame. You fuel the fire as you serve, and then you see it grow. And then as the fire grows, as it kindles and grows and and, and exponentially glows through you, working in the way in which you have been called, God replaces more and more of the fear with more and more of the Spirit. The way that the Holy Spirit works, having called us and having equipped us at our conversion, is he continues to pour out upon us, as John says in John chapter 1, gift after gift, charis ati karitos, uh, spirit upon spirit, grace upon grace, more. There's always more of the Spirit to flow from more of the Spirit. So what does the Spirit do when we serve in the Spirit as the fire grows? Gives you more gifts, verse 7. A spirit, he says, of power and love and self-control. Power, dunamis. Uh, We did a whole series on this, 1 Thessalonians, and I offended our engineers by putting the wrong, um, whatever it was, generator on the, on the front cover of the bulletin. I, I live in eternal shame, having chosen Edison's foul design that was woefully inadequate compared to the wonderful work of Westinghouse. However, power, dynamis, we stay on track, and Stu is my friend again. Uh, we, it means that we have an ability to do a thing that we couldn't otherwise in our own strength do, like a dynamo. Dynamis, the power of the Holy Spirit, empowers us to do stuff that we could not do before. If you think you cannot serve, that's because you cannot serve until you can. And now God says you can. God equips those he calls. Uh, Second thing, second thing the Spirit gives us is love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's probably one of the most famous passages in Scripture that I get asked to read at every wedding and even funeral now. And uh, he says, you know, you can do all sorts of things, even miracles, but if you have not love, then it is useless. Power and love, these two facets of the Spirit that so often go hand in hand. You can't do anything without the power, and if you do the thing powerfully without the love, you're going to destroy something and cause harm. 
So power and love, these two most profound gifts of the Holy Spirit that he will pour out upon you as you serve. And then we get one of the weirdest things in Scripture. As he completes the triad of spiritual gifts, power and love, with self-control. And you might be thinking, like, was, would, did he just need a three? Like, was the, why, why put that? That's a weird sort of thing to put in there. Incredibly useful gift, though, if you're going to serve. If you put a group of people together in a room and you say, right, you are now all leaders, and you're all going to serve and all going to lead this thing together at once, they are never going to agree with one another. That would be a really fun thing to do at Church of the Ascension, actually. And I'm going to invite them to do it. A bit risky in your own church, though, to say to everybody, right, you're all in charge now. But uh, at, the, uh, at the Reformation Party last year, I had been uninvolved with the entire process. Apart from buying a beard, I did absolutely nothing for that party at all. And I came in half an hour before the party, and I saw that nothing was where I would have put it or where Bridget would have put it. Literally nothing was in the right place. Yeah, there was a table right in the way, and I thought, well, that's, that's wrong. That doesn't go there. And then all the drinks were being served at this end of the room as far from the ice machine as possible. I thought, well, that's dumb. That doesn't go there. There's a reason why we serve the drinks by the, the ice thing, right? And then, and then I noticed, horror of horrors, that someone had plugged something into the wrong outlet. And this is the outlet that you do not touch. This is the outlet that only just by a millimeter fits underneath the table that hides the floor outlet. And then once, trying to get it just right, I measured the outlet to get it just in place, and the tape measure crossed the prongs of the plug and caught fire. And so I am now banned from going within 10 feet of that particular outlet. Um, you know, I kindled a flame. It's biblical, but that's, that's all I did. And my first thought when I saw all of this was like, we're going to have to move everything before anyone arrives. This is a disaster. Then I thought, what am I doing? That's going to demoralize everyone. And then the Spirit gave to me something that I've never had before, uh, which was a little bit of self-control. <laughs> Adderall also works. But uh, the Spirit gave me... <laughs> self-control. And uh, I, I shut up. And then as the night went on, and I realized that a, 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 as the rector of this church, about a third of the people at the party were people I'd never even met before in my life. I started to think, okay, this, this might be a good party. Uh, and then uh, the music started, and I saw how the room worked, and I saw that they'd actually put a lot of careful thought and planning and prayer and work into how they'd arranged the room so that at just the right moment, we could gather around the piano and sing Reformation hymns and have a drink and fit into the space. And I thought, I'm so glad I shut up, because they were right. And I was wrong. Self-control. It fascinates me that of all of the things Paul could have put on this list of three, he puts here, just underneath power and love, at the very top of a list that could have 200 things on it, self-control. The minute you come out of a dithering, dying, dwindling, complaining, consuming, controlling mode of church into a church that has been built to serve, we are all going to need some self-control. It is a very important gift. 
So here we are, it's a new year. I'm inviting you all to serve, to worship, to do a thing, to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ, if they're younger than you, your faith and what God has done, to be vulnerable and share mistakes, to take a risk and stand up in front of people and do a thing, or to serve quietly out back in a way that you've not done before. I'm inviting every single one of us to get up. We've got YouTubers. It's difficult for you to serve. You in the room, don't be pewtubers and just sit there. That's not biblical. It's sinful. And as you think about that and you talk and you pray and you take a risk, here's a quote. The scholar Robert Yarborough said, Fear can take control in the complexities of gospel service. The resulting stress can be paralyzing or contempt to flight. God's spirit imparts steadiness. Do not be afraid is a signature dominical exhortation in the Gospels, as Paul concisely erects a bulwark against craven lassitude with his appeal to God's gifting. Unbelievably, he wrote that just three years ago. (laughs) Sounds about 200 years old to me, and I think what he means is this. Get on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you have called us and equipped us for acts of service. And I pray, Father, as we live out our baptismal vows, as we renewed our vows and renewed our membership of this church and made a solemn declaration of our desire to commit, connect, and contribute, that now, Lord Jesus, as we open up a little bit, you would enable us to serve. Father, if anyone in this room is feeling called, would you confirm that calling? Would you use someone in this room as a prophetic person, perhaps to confirm that calling? Would you use us to encourage one another and exhort? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.